to mention, though, uh, real quick. So a lot of you have met Miguel. He's someone who's been visiting here, even though he speaks no English. Uh, it was kind of interesting. He came and a few weeks ago just sat down during an assembly, and many of the brethren tried to talk to him, but you know he didn't speak English. He didn't leave because of that. He stuck around, and we've been using like Google Translate to try to talk to him, which has worked pretty well. Um, but he has a, a bilingual Bible now with... Um, an accurate Spanish translation and an English trans the ESV translation on the other side, each page. Um, and him and I should be getting together this week, and um, it seems like there'll be some consistency. Uh, he was actually planning on being here today, but he got called into work yesterday. Um, so hopefully we'll, we'll see him um, Wednesday or Sunday, Lord willing. And then secondly, I appreciate that song that Brandon uh, just led, Your Promises Are True and I Believe. It's just a very powerful statement to make to God. Um, and I think it relates even to the subject this morning. I know that, you know, nowhere does God necessarily promise that every church is going to have elders. But while that may be true, you know, there's a sense where when God gives an instruction, that is itself in a way a promise, that God's commands are promises. Commands that he will work with his people to accomplish those things, cultivate those things, bring them about. Uh, this church can have elders, it's just a matter of whether or not we put our trust in God that he is able to do that, maybe in ways that we may not fully grasp. Uh, just for example, my trust in God is I'm not experienced. I haven't been uh, a part of a congregation where I was very active necessarily in the work of appointing elders, even when elders were appointed. Um, and with this congregation, it's a long-term goal, not a short-term thing that's right on the horizon. But my confidence isn't that I know how to put together like a written plan of like in five years, here's where we're going to be and you know, we'll be able to appoint elders in five years. I don't know how to do that. I just frankly don't have the wisdom for that. So my trust is though, as we talk about it, as it's taught, that in trying to apply these things and pray about them more than anything, that God will do his work as we surrender to his instructions and pray for these things. And I want to remind you as well, just by introduction, about the kind of culture that was uh, around Titus. Verse 5, he's told to appoint elders in every city around Crete. And yet, in verse 12, he mentions that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. You know, so a lot of times it's, you know, claimed that, well, you know, the culture is, is just too far off from God's standard. You know, we just have trouble finding men who are qualified I think if anybody could have blamed culture for not being able to appoint elders, it sounds like Crete would be a pretty fair place to blame culture. But the instructions Titus was given, Titus and the churches he would be a part of teaching, they were responsible for developing a culture within, a kingdom culture, that was countercultural to Crete, obviously. And as they would do this, it would cultivate an environment where men were taking responsibility for being the kind of men God has called them to be. Women taking responsibility to be the kind of people they have called them to be. Parents being the kind of parents God has called them to be. When people are being prudent in their preparation, a church can have elders. Prudence being I'm looking ahead and having the wisdom to prepare right now things that you know, are for the future. And obviously preparation is involved with prudence that you can't just look ahead and say, oh, I want to be you know, qualified one day to be an elder. Look, the reality is if you're young, and you're deciding you'd rather be very passive about your faith and your relationship with God, you're not going to be an elder one day. 
And I hope that that frankness maybe pushes you that the church needs elders. We need elders. It's not something where we should just think, well, we're able to get by okay, men's meetings, we seem to make decisions, you know, all right in the interim. That can't be our attitude. God gave an instruction to have elders because that's what the church is designed to have structurally and it's what it needs. That's the kind of leadership a local church must have. And we really need to see it that way and be serious-minded about that. But as we go through Titus, um, we're going to see instructions that I think not only relate to each individual's role, but I think it does relate to an eldership. I think an eldership is cultivated in a local church when everyone is really trying to be the kind of person God has called them to be. So this is our second lesson on the elders. We covered some of the things that um, maybe not everybody will be able to have as a part of their family and life. Um, married to one wife, children who believe. A person can be a thriving Christian without those things. But in verses 8 and 9, we're going to see things that are more universal qualities. Some will spend more time on than others. Even though it's only two verses, we're just going to look at 8 and 9. Um, I've had to do a lot of work this week to like condense <laughs> Uh, each of these qualities, there, there is a lot to talk about. And again, some I'll talk about more than others. Some I'll talk very briefly about. There's even, I think, a little bit of overlap with some of them. Um, but I hope at least the principle and enough application is conveyed that we're able to have a good understanding, a grounded understanding of what these things look like and how they can be applied and really how they must be applied. One final reminder is in verse 5, when we're talking about elders, we're not just talking about elderly people. We're talking about someone who meets these qualifications here in Titus chapter 1 and over in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Older men who meet these qualifications without exception, who are appointed into a role and into a work. These men are also called overseers, bishops, pastors. If you're visiting with us, the religious culture today, usually the preacher is called pastor. That's actually unbiblical. A pastor is a part of a group of men who are pastors, plural. It's never just one man, and it's not just the person preaching. It's a group of men appointed by the church who meet these qualifications. So when we're talking about elders, we are talking about men appointed into a role who meet these qualifications. So simply the title at the top on the head of every single section we're going to be looking at is an elder must or must be, because these are all qualities that an elder must have without exception. And firstly, in verse eight, we're just going to go one by one. An elder must be hospitable. Hospitality is one of those things that the more you talk about it and think about it, the more inevitably convicting it becomes. Um, there's some things that Jesus said about hospitality that I was thinking about bringing up that I'm not going to for the sake of time. But hospitality can really become as convicting as you're willing to allow yourself to be convicted by. There's just so much involved with people and relationships and what this term ultimately means, not just in a broad sense by definition, but what it means when Jesus exemplifies it and talks about it. But I've summarized it this way. I'll have a little, little summary with each, each term. Uh, hospitality is, I think, when you condense it to what it is in Jesus's life, ultimately, it boils down to being willing to share your time, your space, and your resources with others. Did Jesus have a home? He didn't. So on the board, I haven't put like bringing people into your home. I do think that's involved, 
But if hospitality just meant bringing people into your home, then Jesus' ministry he wouldn't really have been very hospitable because he had no home to bring people into. What you do see him doing, though, relentlessly, is he shares his time with people. Jesus allowed himself to be interrupted by people. If someone talked to Jesus, he would talk to them. If someone invited Jesus into their home, he would go with them, and he would go into their home. Jesus shared his space with people. Even though he didn't have a home for people to be brought into, he, sure, he certainly would share his private, personal space with people. You know, very often he had to actually go away, far away from the crowds, to be able to have time to pray, because Jesus just allowed people to come into his space all the time. And he shared everything he had with others. And I think the cross exemplifies this. Even the clothes on his back, he let be, he let be ripped from his body in the time of his death. And just a couple of instructions, I think, related to this. In 1 Peter 9, we're told to be hospitable to one another without complaint. So I do think there's a special focus here that does relate to an eldership that within a local church, we have to have a particular emphasis on sharing our time, space, and resources with each other here. And that's something that we are particularly seen instructed. But I want you to keep in mind as well that that's not really as far as this term is meant to go. Jesus, for instance, would say, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Hospitality, or to be hospitable, in its most literal definition, um, I'll bring this up with another word here in a moment, just some like Greek things for whatever it's worth. Uh, to be hospitable is actually a compound word. It's two words put into one. It's the love of strangers. The love of strangers. I don't think we're strangers here, right? So although we do need to show hospitality toward each other, you know, be in each other's homes, eat with each other, talk with each other, encourage each other, not just when we're together at assemblies, but even strangers. You know, an elder is the kind of person who should have a love for strangers. They're willing to spend time with people they don't really know. They try to make space emotionally and even with their time to be able to spend time with new people that they don't already have an established relationship with. And again, if we were to focus on how Jesus teaches about that, it becomes daunting very quickly. But this, this is a discipline. It's something that happens not by accident, but because a person is deliberate to follow the example of Jesus with something like hospitality. A couple things before we move on. One, a lack of hospitality shows a lack of love for people. This is something that I've mentioned before as we've talked about this, this subject in past lessons. Um, but I think that's something to really keep in mind, that if hospitality is not something that I'm striving for, striving to grow in or apply, what that ultimately shows is a lack of love for people and a lack of understanding of my relationship to Jesus. And then number two, this is where the work of an elder happens. Uh, so when I did a lesson a while ago on how do, how do we grow into having elders without having elders right now, like what can we do as a church so that was more looking forward and not just talking about the qualities themselves. And what this person said who gave me some counsel about this is in his work as an elder, you know, it's not just about making congregational decisions about Bible class schedules, you know, watching over the assemblies, making sure that sound doctrine is taught, um, kind of overseeing the bigger decisions that get made as a local church. But ultimately, you're overseeing people's souls individually. So how do you do the work of overseeing people's souls? Just like five-minute conversations as you get opportunity as an, at, at assemblies? No. 
The work of an elder ultimately happens because they're inviting themselves into other people's lives each week and inviting people into their lives each week. It's a work that happens with people one-on-one ultimately, not just broadly. The second thing we see in verse 8 is to love what is good. This is one of those challenging things to talk about. It'd be easy to just say, so they need to love what is good, so love what is good. Moving on, right? But we need to think about, like, what does it mean to love what is good to the point where you can recognize that in a person's character? Because I don't think these things are meant to be conveyed as so ambiguous, you have no idea if a person is actually applying this. It's meant to be something we recognize, and we see this person, I see it in them, that they do love what is good. So a way that I've summarized this is it looks like prioritizing, pursuing, and rejoicing in God's goodness, both personally and with others. A couple of thoughts on this. It's not just that they like what is good. It's not just that they like being around what is good or enjoy good things. It's that they love it. How do you know when a person loves someone or something? Not just like them, but they love them or they love it, whatever it is. You know, maybe it's like a hobby and, and you just, you love the hobby, right? How do you know when it goes beyond just, yeah, I'm interested in that. I like that. If it's around me, you know, I'll enjoy it. You know, like I enjoy watching football when I'm with people who are into it, but I never watch football in my own time, right? So you wouldn't look at my life and assume I love watching football. It's when you prioritize it. It's when you make sure you make time for it. It's something that you're pursuing and it even emotionally impacts you, right? Romans 12.9 says we're also to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. I think what it looks like is our, our attitude also toward sin, toward things that are just unclean, things that are contrary to God's character of holiness. You know, this is very all-encompassing. I think this can be seen in someone's choices of what do they find entertaining? What's humorous to them? What do they laugh at? What's their sense of humor? And as silly as it may be to think about those things, That can say a lot about whether a person hates and abhors what is evil and really loves what is good. Later in Romans 12, it'll even say, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And so I don't think it's just about, you know, when good is experienced personally, but when also you see it in others at your expense. Think about when Jesus was crucified. Jesus's crucifixion demonstrates his love for goodness more than any other time in his life. Because Jesus chose to continue loving what is good, even when he had to sacrifice everything for it, and when it meant that others were going to benefit as they were taking everything he had away from him actively. So to love what is good is to prioritize it, pursue it, even when that may mean it's painful to me and I have to sacrifice for it. That's what it means to love a person, isn't it? To love them even when it's hard, even when you have to sacrifice time and energy for them still. You seek them, you stay with them, you're faithful to them. This next one will talk for a little bit longer. To be sensible. This word uh, in its Greek form is actually used throughout Titus, uh, more consistently in Titus than any other book of the Bible. It's really only used in Titus and Timothy, so more than any other book in the Bible may sound like a bit of exaggeration. But anyway, it's in Titus, it's in Timothy. It's used four times in Titus, once in Timothy, and each person ultimately is told they need to be sensible. The Greek word is translated differently in a way that might be a little confusing. Um, You may not see sensible in verse 8 in your Bible, but it's that third term after loving what is good. Your Bible may say, for instance, sober-minded, if you have the New King James 
or it may say self-controlled if you have the ESV. And kind of the confusing thing is in the New American Standard, the final term is self-controlled. So ESV has self-controlled for sensible, and where the ESV at the end says disciplined, the NASB translation says self-controlled. So to kind of clarify why that is, again, for whatever it's worth, I'm going to talk about the Greek word. Uh, to be sensible is a compound word again. Compound, compound. It's a compound word. It's two words combined into one. And what this word means is, is to be saved, to be whole, to be healthy. And that's all the same word. Um, because if someone is saved, they're made whole, right? So it's to be saved, made whole, healthy. And the word that means those things combined with the word that means the mind, especially as the mind pertains to judgments and decisions. So it's kind of like whole-minded, a healthy mind, which is where the idea of sober-minded in the New King James comes in. So that is a really good translation for the word. But I think this, this relates more to a person's judgments and how do they make decisions in their lives. So the way that I've summarized this is to be sensible, they show practical and godly wisdom in the decisions that they make. And when dealing with various positions, problems, and people. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. I want to go to Proverbs really quick to talk about some of these things. Um, another kind of like word thing. The root word that um, sensible comes from, there's another word closely related that comes from that same root word that in, the, that in the New Testament is also translated as wise or prudent. So the wise man built his house on the rock. Very similar word, right? So I think the Proverbs and what they say about wisdom really relates to this idea of being sensible. Look at Proverbs 17, 24. So it says, Wisdom is, the, is in the presence of the one who has understanding, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. You know, so think about this with your position and how decisions are made. When, when I say position on there, I just mean like your life circumstances. How did Jesus handle various positions of his life? Did he daydream about how, oh, I wish things could be better and if only things were different? And, you know, Jesus was obviously striving to make things better. But did Jesus deal with reality as it was in each circumstance? You know, when Jesus had more, you know, I'll say physically prosperous times and exciting times, he dealt with it. And he dealt with it God's way. When Jesus had to be abandoned by his disciples and again, suffer crucifixion, he dealt with it. He dealt with the reality of what that situation needed. He dealt with applications that needed to be make, made. And he wasn't like putting his eyes on the ends of the earth, you know, just completely disconnecting himself from what was going on, wishing that things could be better and just drowning in the problem. Wisdom is in the presence of the one who has understanding. A wise person deals with reality as it is. It deals with your circumstances and strives to make the best of whatever that circumstance is, financially, relationships, whatever. Wisdom deals with problems as they are. It doesn't just get overwhelmed with problems. It doesn't drown in them. It doesn't wallow on how bad things are. Wisdom deals with problems and the reality of whatever it may be, and it looks for solutions and it works through it. It deals with people as they are. It doesn't think like, oh, I wish this person was so different than they are. Just, I hate how they are. I wish they were different. Wisdom deals with people as they are. It doesn't mean you don't try to help people become better. 
it can just be very crippling when you let yourself get lost in daydreaming about wishing things were different, wishing people were different, wishing your circumstances were different, wishing your finances were different. The key to fulfillment is not that the grass is greener on the other side. The key to fulfillment is wisdom and learning how to find fulfillment in the reality of where you are and deal with it with wisdom. 19 verse 2. And you imagine how important this is for an elder, but also the counsel they'll need to give to people. Um, 19 verse 2. Also, it is not good for a person to be without knowledge, and he who hurries his footsteps errs. You know, there's some people where it's not sinful, but they always make bad decisions, or they, they, they start things, and they don't realize ultimately what's going to be needed to finish whatever you've started. And so they just they constantly make decisions and commitments, and they never finish things. And it's like they always frustrate people around them because they're not taking certain things into account. They're not, they're not you know, thinking about what's needed to follow through or how other people involved may be hurt or impacted by certain decisions. It is not good for a person to just be hasty in their decisions. It's not necessarily sinful to make foolish decisions, but you certainly shouldn't be an elder. And you should not have the responsibility of overseeing a local church if it's not obvious that when you make decisions, you are considerate, you are thoughtful, and you're able to finish things that you start because you're very aware of challenges that may come through it, right? To look at chapter 20, verse 18. And again, this is, this is, to be sensible and sober-minded is going to be something said of older men, women, young men, and that's why we're spending more time on this, is kind of laying the groundwork for something that goes beyond elders here. 20 verse 18, prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. So very similar to the last principles we read in the Proverbs, but plans should be prepared by consultation. An elder is, a, is someone who listens. They've sought counsel with how to do things in better ways. They've had a tender heart where if brethren have advice or a correction or rebuke because something isn't being handled right, could be done better, this is someone who's proven that they're willing to listen. And this idea of making war by wise guidance. You know, I don't think any of us have ever, like, waged war before. But I think, again, it's the principle of the proverb that we need to take from this. There's a lot that goes into war. And it's like what Jesus says. What ruler doesn't first consult and, and realize, do I have what I need in my forces to confront that army with that number of forces? And if you just rush into battle and your ambition gets the better of you, you may suffer catastrophic defeat. And other people are involved in war. It's not just you. People might die because of your foolish decision. We really need to think about how people are affected by the decisions we make. That will be very evident in a man and his family. And there will be other decisions a man may make that will draw that out. It doesn't mean that a man is sinning necessarily, that he's not a thriving Christian. Again, I know some brethren, and I don't, I don't mean here. But there are brethren sometimes where it's just like they just can't make really good decisions. That person is not equipped to be an elder, right? But we all need to learn to be more sensible. We'll get to that. So the way decisions are made is with wisdom, consultation, consideration, 
When I think about my life circumstances, I'm not just swallowing like, oh, I just don't like how things are. I just, I wish things were better. Things need to change. It's like, well, do something about it. Be wise and find fulfillment in where you are. Your circumstances should never determine your joy or zeal. We have to learn to let God determine that despite whatever our circumstances might be. To be just, and this is one we'll talk about a bit briefly, but I think to be just is just to be firm and impartial with myself and with others. You know, justice doesn't just determine how I treat other people, but do I exempt myself? Am I the exception? You know, as we talked about this morning, leadership. Should leadership never accept fault or flaw or weakness or ever own up to sin or even confess sin that other people might never know about if I didn't bring it up or even go forward before the church to confess something or seek prayers about something, right? But it's not just punishing right doing and wrongdoing either. When I think about justice, that's usually what I think about is, you know, rewarding the right and punishing the wrong. I think with justice, it's more dealing with God's judgments on every matter without partiality or exception. There are people where we may be tempted to be harsh and impatient, but maybe what they need is encouragement and comfort and long-suffering kindness. On the other hand, there may be people who are tempted to just coddle them and be comforting and encouraging and kind when really they may need stern correction and to be strongly exhorted. An elder is going to need to know the difference between those things and how to handle people differently. And as we talked about again this morning in Bible class, people will pressure you. People will pressure in eldership. People can be dishonest and manipulative. That's That's just how we are. It's how I am. We're stubborn. We can be very manipulative. We can be easily steeped in self-deception. And an elder needs to be the kind of person who can deal with people firmly as God says he needs to and see through things and get to the heart of problems and be just. And lastly, with what it means to be just, this will be evident in how this person deals with those they have the closest relationships with. It will be evident in the people they have the closest relationships with. Eli in the Old Testament in Samuel's day was not willing to put his children to death when that's what God said needed to happen. He was willing to rebuke them, but not willing to do what God said. Not that we need to kill anybody anymore, the new covenant context. But we have to be really careful that our closest relationships don't become the exception. How many parents fall away because of their kids or kids because of their parents or their siblings You get into a romantic relationship and all of a sudden your doctrinal views are changing. An overseer is someone who has proven that they are firm and rooted and consistent without making exceptions because they really, really like someone or they're intimidated by someone or they just really wish someone didn't have to do something particular that God says. An elder is just. To be devout. What does it mean to be devout? Um, And again, I think this interweaves with some other points here. But this is a term that's used most often to describe Jesus as God's holy one. Uh, There's different terms that are translated in the Greek to holy or devout. And again, this one, the majority of the time this word is used, it means Jesus as God's holy one. So when you think about devout, I think like maybe what comes to your mind may not be right. Um, I think when you put these qualities together, 
You may think that this is talking about someone who's a total curmudgeon. They never laugh. They're always serious. Whereas I think a sensible person does have a sense of humor, and they also have the sense to realize not everything is worth arguing over. Not everything is critically important. Not every, you don't have to sweat the small stuff. Some things are funny. Some things aren't. A devout person understands, though, God's things need to be treated really seriously. And that God's word is critically important to not just hear, but to obey. And a devout person has committed themselves to putting God's word into practice, and it has impacted their attitude in very evident ways. So I think to be devout is to simply show modesty, and I don't just mean in apparel, but that would certainly be a part of it. Modesty would matter to them in apparel, but it would also mean that they have a subdued character. They're not obnoxious. They're okay being uh, mistreated, neglected, not recognized. You know, they're not looking to be put up front. They're not looking for attention. They're not wanting people to be forced to respect them and praise them. But they're also people of deep conviction. You know, they're very convicted about what God's word says on every matter. And so they stand on principle and conviction. And they have a deep respect for authority. Authority, I think, in a general sense. Holiness, I think, exhibits a great deal of honor and respect for authority and principle. But this is someone where they, they care about the Lord's authority very deeply. You know, what, what is suggested in terms of how a church should use its money? What a church should do congregationally? You know, again, as we talked about this morning, authority can seem like a mundane subject. We've got to be really careful about that. Authority is very important to talk about and to talk about very consistently. We live in a world saturated with an attitude toward God's word that does not involve the right view of his authority. Uh, to be devout is to deeply respect the Lord's authority. To be self-controlled. Um, and again, this word is, is, is somewhat similar to being sensible as in the ESV it is translated self-controlled. Uh, ESV, this is also translated as disciplined. And I think this would be a person who is considerate, they're conscientious, and they're in control of themselves. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2. Um, so that's actually chapter 6, verse 12. I didn't even accurately say what was on the board. I said chapter 4, verse 2. It's 4.12. It's 6.12. Chapter 6, verse 12. Uh, Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And so this is where on the board I put, they're free from addictions. You know, so this is someone who doesn't use tobacco. They obviously don't use drugs. They don't dabble in alcoholic usage in any degree. They don't have a beer in their personal time or drink some wine. This is someone who exhibits control of themselves. They're not dependent on any unclean habits or anything like that that could hurt their ability to influence and edify others. And in verse 12, they're not trying to justify things because they can, right? It's like the Bible doesn't say, I can't do that. Is that really the considerate thing, though? Is that what it means to be conscientious? The Corinthians were a very worldly-minded group, and Paul is trying to call them to a higher standard. It's not just about, well, am I sinning if I do this? Man, an elder is going to have to deal with so often, not just telling people, here's what God's word says, it's clear in black and white, but giving advice. Here's what wisdom says to do. Here's the better way. And it says a lot about a person's heart and faith 
when they're willing to accept the better way, the way that may require a greater degree of self-control. Something might be lawful, but it may not be profitable. Go to chapter 10, 23 through 24. I think ultimately self-control is about relationships. You know, this isn't like a worldly, like, self-mastery. You know, if Scott became a vegan, he would have to have a lot of self-control. But I don't think that would be like godly self-control necessarily. If I quit drinking coffee, that would require self-control. If I just stopped drinking coffee. But that wouldn't necessarily require some movement of my faith and relationship with God, right? So we are talking about self-control, especially as it relates to our faith and relationship with God, not just quitting habits because we just want to do that. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 24, I think gets into that. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. What does it take to be hospitable? To put your hands deep into someone's life without coming out of it disheartened, destroyed, influenced to sin or embittered, self-control. You've got to know how to discipline yourself, as Paul said in chapter 9, same context of thought. He beats his body and brings it into subjection so that after he's preached to others, he himself would not be disqualified. It requires self-control in a godly sense to really invest yourself in people, diverse people, people that you have no reason to love or connect with except God instructs you to get involved and put yourself in people's lives. To do that requires this kind of self-control. It's considerate, conscientious, and in control of self. And then finally, with uh, back to Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Um, we're just going to talk about some of the instructions that relate to an elder's connection to the word and how he utilizes the word. So he's to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. And this is someone who shows an invested and well-studied and unyielding trust in what God's word says about anything and everything. We won't go there for the sake of our time this morning, but in Acts chapter 20, 17 through 35, I would just maybe, it's like a homework assignment. Acts 20, 17 through 35, Paul calls the elders of Ephesus to have a moment with them before he goes to Jerusalem to ultimately be imprisoned there. And he exhorts them about their work as elders. And in his exhortation, he focuses most of all on commending to them an example of teaching, holding to God's word, and exhorting with God's word. That is his consistent emphasis in what he says to the elders. What happens if a man is appointed as an elder? He's wise. He's loving. He's hospitable. But he's not invested in God's word. He doesn't really read his Bible ever. You know, he's a loving person. Gets along with people great. Maybe he even makes really wise decisions. But he doesn't love God's word. He doesn't seem to have deep convictions about God's word and her instructions. Catastrophic. We can never, ever appoint men as elders here who are not deeply invested and well-studied with God's word and instruction. And not just congregational doctrines like rhetoric things, but understanding the kind of people we are each called to be and understanding things in a personally studied and convicted way. They must hold fast the faithful word. They're shepherding God's people for God's reasons, 
not just helping people get by. And they have to be able to exhort in sound teaching. You know, this kind of gets to the importance of why do they need to be so well studied and have deep, personally found convictions with God's will and instructions. They need to exhort. Turn to 1 Thessalonians. It should just be a couple books of the Bible back, probably just a few pages. 1 Thessalonians 4. Exhortation and rebuke requires a great deal of courage. Uh, to exhort and rebuke are not fun things. They're risky things. They're emotionally taxing things, but they're critical. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1, and we'll talk a little bit more about what it means to exhort. Finally then, brethren, we, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as, as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. So to exhort here, just to start here, is to strongly urge a call to action to make an application of what God says. You notice that he says, we exhort you that as you are instructed to walk, to live, that you continue in that and even excel still more. Exhortation doesn't always involve correction, but it always involves a call to action. Even if that means you need to act even further or further apply what you've already been doing. Exhortation is always a strong urging to take action. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we'll see the, use, the word used there as well. 2 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 12. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. And so the hard thing is there are many times when you're working with people where, again, it takes a great deal of courage to exhort someone to do something that they're not doing. Maybe they were doing it and they stopped. Or maybe they're deliberately neglecting it at this point. (laughs) To exhort someone to take action that they're not taking can be really challenging. And there's all sorts of things that our minds can tell us of, well, this is why I shouldn't. This is why I can't. An elder's got to be someone who has, from experience, cut through those hesitations, and they're just willing to take the risk. There's always going to be a reason we can find to not have conversations like this. When we see something, we know, like, man, it would really help this person if they thought more about this, or this person is doing this, and it just doesn't seem like that's really God's way of handling the situation got to have the courage to say something in those moments. It's so critical. We've got to have a culture where we're willing to listen, willing to listen, receive correction, and change. And if we don't exhort each other, it's just not going to happen. And so finally, an elder needs to be someone who's willing and able to refute those or convict those who contradict. I want to finish looking at the last part of Titus 1 because he says the reason why. Notice the first word in verse 10, the New American Standard, is for. So this is the reason why this is so important. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them, notice this, severely, so that they may be sound in faith 
not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. I had a conversation with someone yesterday where I was looking for counsel, and I was amazed. This is an older brother that I trust uh, a great deal. I was amazed at how gentle he was in considering some very delicate factors of a hard situation, but how frank he was about the sin and the lies and the godlessness involved. He was much more frank than I was, but in a way that was just like the clarity and the gentleness and the wisdom of it was very evident. And it really challenged me to think more about the fact that you can be gentle and still see things as they really are. Paul was a very gentle person. But look at verse 12 and 13. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul doesn't say, well, that's pretty extreme. He says, no, that's exactly right. That is how it is. And you've got to deal with that reality sensibly. Notice in verse 15, there's people who profess to know God. They, they say the right things, but they don't obey God and so what does Paul say their condition is? Detestable, disobedient, worthless. Have you ever thought about someone like that? That they've become detestable? That's so uncomfortable. The idea, though, is an elder is someone who sees things as they are. They're willing to say it like it is. And that doesn't mean they're not gentle or patient or kind or loving. It just means they're sensible, right? And they need to be the kind of person who is both willing to and able to refute those who are unwilling to submit to what God says and deal with that properly. That's the lesson for this morning. Um, I appreciate everybody thinking through that barrage of qualities. I hope that um, some of these things can stick with you and germinate in your heart as they've challenged me. I hope they as well can help you see a higher calling in our relationship with God, not just for elders, but for each one of us. If you're here this morning and you see that you need the prayers of the saints and need to bring anything forward in your relationship with God, please bring it forward while we stand and sing an invitation song.